growing up, my parents would always get my sister and I Christmas gifts from one another, and we would just write our names on them. And that was a great, that was a great celebration until we reached about high school, and my parents were like, all right, if you're going to give each other gifts, you can buy them yourself. And we decided we would still get each other gifts, but I didn't really know what to get my sister. She was kind of hard to shop for, and really the only thing that she liked was clothes. And so one year I took a girl to the mall as a way of helping me pick out something for my sister we were dating at the time. And we went into the first store, and after looking at things for her for 45 minutes, I'm like, hey, can, we, uh, can we look at some things for my sister? And she pointed out a couple things, and I went and I grabbed something off the rack, and she said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm getting my sister a Christmas gift. We've, we've been here for an hour. She said, oh, no, we've only been to one store. Like, there's a, we've got to go to multiple stores and see what we really want to get her. And that's when I decided right then and there, moving forward, this was going to be a solo effort. And what I would do is I would go to the mall, and I would find the ugliest thing I could find, not trying to be mean, I just don't really have that great sense of style, and I would pick it out, and I would get it for my sister. And chances are, if I thought it was really ugly, she would like it. And it, it, it worked. And my sister's not somebody who would pretend... Uh, to like something that she doesn't like. Not that she's rude, she just has no poker face, and you can tell when she's lying. So this old, there was only one Christmas, only one Christmas that I picked out the ugliest thing I could find in the store, and she and I agreed that it was really ugly, and she asked to return it, so she took it back. Well, shortly as, as I was wrapping up, and shortly after my sister was done with college, she was a nurse, she had a, a full-time job, and I was finishing up college, I had no money, uh, we were doing this, the same old routine. So I went to the mall, found the store that I knew she liked, walked in, found the ugliest outfit I could find, bought it for her, wrapped it up, Christmas morning comes. I hand my sister the ugly, Chris, the ugly sweater that I got her for Christmas, she opens it up, she's like, oh, it's great, she, she liked it. Uh, and then she hands me my present, and I open it up, and it's a brand new iPod. Now, some of you have no idea what I'm talking about, but in the not-too-distant past, we used to not be able just to plug into our phones and listen to any song we wanted to listen to on demand. We actually had to have a separate device dedicated to music. And when I was growing up, the first thing, the first one of these was a Walkman. And that was a clunky thing that you could insert a cassette into. And you probably have no idea what a cassette is. Google it. But it was this thing of actual tape that they would somehow get songs onto actual tape. And you would put, it was called a Walkman. You could, it had a belt clip or you could put it in a pocket and, and you had had headphones, and from there, they had portable CD players. So we moved from Walkmans to portable CD players, and you probably have no idea what a CD is, so think of a Blu-ray today, but only music, and there was a device, a little player, and it wouldn't fit in your pocket. You just kind of had to hold it, and if you hit a bump while you were jogging, it would skip, so it wasn't great technology, but that's the way you could listen to songs. But the iPod, it was designed by Apple, and it was the first digital music player that you could take, and it was really small. And when they first came out, it was really cutting-edge technology, and it was a really nice gift. I gave my sister an ugly sweater. She gave me an iPod. We both were given gifts, but I got a way better gift. And today we're going to look at the best gift that we could receive, and we continue our look at the book of Acts. Last week we started Continued, which is our journey through the book of Acts. And what we saw last week was after Jesus died on the cross, he rose again three days later. The work of God 
is not finished. It's not like Jesus just rose again, ascended to heaven, and God's like, okay, I'm out, I'm done. No, God still has a plan for humanity, and that plan involves the church, and the plan involves people, and it's, it's fascinating. That's what we're going to look at, and that's what we're going to discover, because this has implications, not just for us corporately, it's how we function and how we work as Lakeside collectively, but this has implications for each and every one of us personally, that when we live the life that God has designed us to live. We experience the most joy and the most fulfillment. We experience the best life possible. And so there are implications throughout this book that tie into our lives. And if we're going to live life to the fullest as people that love and follow Jesus, we need to recognize that God wants to work through us, not because he needs us, but because God lovingly chooses to partner with us. And we get to play a part in accomplishing what God wants to do, which is just incredible. Last week we saw the Judas, one of the disciples, he's out of the picture now. He betrayed Jesus. He took his own life. And they like, hey, we, we still need people to come in and to continue what God wants to do through us. And so they cast lots and they chose Matthias. That's where we stopped last week. And we're going to pick up from there in Acts chapter 2. So if you have your phones or your tablets, I'd invite you to follow along with us in the Bible app. It's a great resource. You can find it whatever app store you utilize. Once it's installed on your device, there are a number of great features in the Bible app. One of them is called Events. There you can either enable your locations or type in zip code 54201. Lakeside Community Church will pop up. You can follow along with us that way. If you have a traditional Bible with you this morning, again, we're going to be in the New Testament book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, starting in verse chapter 1 this morning. If you're joining us via the stream, thanks so much for joining us this morning. The verses will be available on the screen below. My name is Brian. I'm part of the team at Lakeside, and we are so glad that you are here joining us as we continue our look at the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1 this morning, we read these words, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Now, Pentecost means 50th. It means 50th. And Pentecost was celebrated 50 days after Passover. We don't have time to look at this, uh, all the origins this morning. If you want to dive in, if you want to learn more about it, you can visit Leviticus chapter 23 this week, specifically Leviticus 23, verses 15 to 22. It goes into some detail about Pentecost being established. Again, we don't have time to look at it all this morning, so I'm just going to give you some of the highlights. Pentecost is one of three annual feasts where the Jewish people would all gather together. The Jewish people would all come together, and at this feast, the Feast of Pentecost, they would offer their first fruits. They would come together, they would bring their first fruits to the temple, and they would make an offering to God to give back to God their first fruits. And I find it fascinating that on this day, this day where people were assembled and people were gathered together in order to give something to God, God is going to give them a gift back that blows anything they could offer out out of the water. I mean, it just blows them away with what God gives them when he gives them the Holy Spirit. And that's what we're going to see today. And this is just a reminder to us that we cannot outgive God. We can never outgive God. And that really needs to instill within all of us an attitude of generosity. Now, I'm not one of these people that's going to approach this with horrible theology. And I'm not trying to tell you, hey, if you put 10 bucks back in the giving box, then God's going to give you 100 bucks this week or anything like that. Because what we're going to see today is we're going to see that people brought their first fruits to God, but God gave them a gift that, that doesn't 
doesn't correlate. So God doesn't always bless us in the same ways that we give to Him. And yet we cannot get around the fact that Scripture repeatedly lets us know that we cannot outgive God. And God will always bless us when we are faithful and we are generous. And this is just yet another example of that, that we cannot outgive God. So as people that love and follow Jesus, it really needs to instill within all of us a spirit of generosity. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty wind, mighty, mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. So as we saw last week, Acts chapter 1 lets us know that all of the disciples now called apostles, all of the disciples are there. They've now brought Matthias into the fold. The Marys are there. Other followers of Jesus are all in the upper room. They're there in the house. And now a mighty rushing wind is heard. And it fills the entire house where everyone is sitting. And if you're like, what in the world is going on? What does that sound like? I don't know. What we're told is a, a mighty rushing wind. And, and by the way, that's not going to be the first time. I'm just like, I don't know today. It's not going to be the last time. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, a couple things. Wind, it was symbolic. It was the sound. The sound was audible, but this idea of wind, it's, it's symbolism. It's to help us understand. It's to help us put the pieces together of what's going on because God is supernatural. And God works in the supernatural realm. God works in the natural realm. But sometimes when a supernatural God works in the natural realm, we're just like, I can't fully explain that. And the reason we can't fully explain that is because we're limited and God is not. And so we're like, ah. So, so that's what's going on here. That This is symbolic. It's symbolic in the same way the tongues of fire appearing. This is not like everybody became a dragon. It was breathing actual fire. This is a descriptor of what's going on, that this is crazy and it's supernatural. These aren't literal flames, but it's majestic and it's powerful and it's wonderful and it's awe-inspiring and it's frightening and it's all those things wrapped into one. What we do know for sure is this. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began speaking in other languages as prompted by God. And then Acts chapter 2 continues. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. People from every nation are living in Jerusalem. People from everywhere across the world have come and they're living in Jerusalem and they hear this noise and what's going on it fascinates them because everyone is speaking a different language from across the world. And it's not like today where if you want to learn a language, you watch a couple YouTube videos, you buy some software, you install Google Translator on your device and, and you just pick it up that way. No, it was more difficult. You had to actually go somewhere and be immersed in the culture in order to learn the language. And so they hear all of these different languages that are being spoken in one central location by all these different people. 
and it's fascinating to them. But they're unsure of it. They're bewildered by what they're hearing. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Say, wait a minute. Wait a minute. These are all Galileans. In the same way in our society, we know just by listening to someone, just by talking to them. If someone's from New York, or somebody's from Boston, if somebody's from Mississippi, or from Minnesota, or Wisconsin. I'm just kidding. Wisconsin doesn't have any accents. Just ask people from Wisconsin. Everybody else in the country has an accent, but no one from Wisconsin has an accent. We know, we know just from conversation with people where they're from. And the people that see this, they see what's going on, they're scratching their heads and they're saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. They're speaking the language, but we hear the accent, we know the dialect. These are all Galileans. How do we hear our native language? How is this going on? How does this work? And this isn't just a handful of people. We have languages represented here from the Middle East to Asia to Europe to Africa. Literally across the world at this point, every, every language is represented by what's going on. And every message is consistent. The languages differ. The message is the same. And every message is telling the mighty works of God. Every single one. Our methods can change, but the message never, never changes. The message is always about the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. Now, I love this. So we've got both sides of the spectrum. We have people who are absolutely amazed by this. They see what's going on, and it just blows their minds. They are amazed by what is taking place, that all of these different languages are being represented. And they look at this, and they're fascinated by this, and they're amazed. And then you have people that are my people. You look at this and you're skeptical of this. And you look at this and you're like, they're drunk. Like, that's, that's the only explanation. These people, they're flat out drunk. There's that's what's going on here. But this is, this is fascinating to me. That God shows up and God works. And what's the response? You have people, some people who are filled with awe and who are amazed. And then you have doubters. You have skeptics. You people that are like, yeah, they're just loaded. Like, that's all? And what's fascinating to me is that when God calls us to do something, He doesn't promise us uniform or easy results. When God shows up and He works, not everybody's going to accept it. Not everybody's going to receive it. 
And this is why it is so vitally important that if God is calling you to do something, and I don't just mean you have a feeling, I mean you know in your heart that God has put this on your heart, and you've prayed about it, and you've searched out scripture about it, and you just keep coming back to it, you keep processing through, and you just keep coming back. You know that God has put this person or this situation or this work that he wants you to do on your heart. Then you need to follow that. And you need to not worry about the cynicism or the skepticism of other people. And how many times are we paralyzed because we're worried about the response of people? Or how many times are we paralyzed because we're worried about the results? When God has put something on our hearts and God has told us to go, our our obligation is that we must be faithful. And it doesn't mean that everybody's going to understand it. It doesn't mean that nobody's going to question it. But my hope and my prayer for your life as you love and follow God is that when God tells you to do something, you're willing to be obedient and you leave the results up to him. And you recognize, hey, some people are going to understand, but some people aren't. And this doesn't mean we go through life in a stupid way. We bury our heads and we're just like, well, God called me to do something, uh, so so I'm just going to do it and not listen to anybody. No, God's put other people in our lives to speak wisdom, to help us out along the way. But when God calls us to do something, be faithful. That doesn't mean it's going to be easy, by the way. And it doesn't mean that it's going to be immensely successful in our own understanding. But what you're required to do is to just be obedient. Let God take care of the results. Because if you're waiting for the day where God calls you to do something and it's going to make sense to everybody... You're never going to do something. Or chances are, God's not the one calling you to do it if everybody else can make sense of it. Spirit of God shows up. The supernatural, the miraculous happens. You have some people who are filled with awe, and you have some people who are like, they're just drunk. So don't allow the feelings and the thoughts of other people ever be what stands in your way of following through on what God has called you to do. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Peter addresses the crowd. He addresses the crowd. He addresses those who are amazed. He addresses those who mocked. And this is a reminder to us. Just share the truth and let God sort out the results. You just be faithful to share the truth and let God sort out the results. You have never been called. You have never been called by God to worry about the results. You just be faithful. You just do your part and leave the results up to God. And Peter stands up. And Peter begins to explain this to the people that are amazed and the people that mocked. And this is just yet another example for us of how incredible our God is. Because out of everybody, who does he use? Peter. And what's Peter known for? Putting his foot in his mouth. Peter's the guy that wouldn't shut up. 
Like, how many times did Jesus have to pull Peter aside and be like, Peter, just shut up, please, just stop, you're wrong. Like, every, it seems like every day, Jesus was having this conversation with Peter. And this is what I love. That God doesn't give up on us. That God sees our mistakes. He even sees the areas that, that we mess up in. And those aren't deterrents for God. God doesn't look at our lives and say, oh, well, you messed up in that area, or I know if I put you here, you're going to do this dumb thing. No, 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 no. God says, oh, Peter, you like to talk? Great. I'm about to use that. I'm about to use your weakness for my glory. That's how incredible God is. And you might be here, and you might feel like God's calling you to do something, or you've got this passion to go do something, but you're just not sure that you're strong enough. You're not sure that you're gifted enough. Or you think about the regrets. You think about the mistakes of your past. You think about all those choices that you made that everybody else knows that you made about too. And you think about all the reasons that you should be disqualified. You think about all the ways that other people look at you and shake their head and say, no, no, no. And what I want you to know is God not only is aware about your past, but God can use your biggest flaws and utilize them for his glory. That's how powerful and how incredible God is. He's not done with you. God uses a broken and a flawed Peter, and he uses him in a powerful way. Peter addresses the crowd. Just share the truth. Let God sort out the rest. Utilize the opportunities and the avenues that God gives you and recognize that where your weakness begins, God will show up. And the weaker you are and the bigger mess that you've made, the more God can be glorified. And in the last days, Peter went on, it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter sees the miracle that God does, and then he breaks down the message for everybody, and he takes them back to the Old Testament book of Joel, and the message is this, that God is not done working, and God is going to do great works. God is not done with humanity. God is still going to do great works. It's the reason that we have hope in all the chaos that we see. It's the reason that we haven't given up when all the craziness that we, that we just are bombarded with on a daily basis now. We're just like, oh, God's not done. That's right. God's not done. And what's he going to do? He's going to use young people. So if you're young, never be discouraged because of your youth and your inexperience. God will use you. He's going to use old people. I don't care if you're 98 years old and you're like, my best days are far behind. If you're not dead, you're not done. And God still has a plan and a purpose for your life, that God is going to use the young and he's going to use the old. God is going to use men and he's going to use women and he's going to use all people, what? 
for his glory. Not because he needs us, but because he lovingly invites us in to partner with him in what he is accomplishing through the world. That is the message of of what's going on. That is the message of the miracle. That is the message of the prophecy that is being fulfilled here and the elements of the prophecy that will be fulfilled when time comes. And what is the ultimate hope that we have? It's wrapped wrapped up for us here in verse 21. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's what it's all about. That's what the miracles are about. That's what the message is about. It's about the fact that we have a God who loves us, who sees us in spite of the ways that we failed, who sees us in spite of our rebellion, loves us anyway, so much so that he sent his son Jesus. And this is what Peter goes on to address next. But I just want to encourage you, if you're young, share the hope of Jesus. If you're old, share the hope of Jesus. If you're a man, share the hope of Jesus. If you're a woman, share the hope of Jesus. That's why you're here. And God has you positioned where you are, and that is not accidental. And you have an opportunity to impact your world with the hope of Jesus. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and for knowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. What does Peter do? He brings it back to Jesus. And he says, Jesus, he performed miracles. You rejected them. Jesus preached messages. You rejected them. Jesus, you crucified Jesus because you rejected him. But guess what? He was victorious. He was victorious. The cross did not win. And the benefit of that is extended to us all. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. He says, Jesus, he offers us hope. He offers us the hope of victory. He offers us the hope of victory. And how do we know that for sure? How can we be sure of that? Well, he goes on to tell us. Brothers, I must say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. He says, we've all assembled together as our heritage, one of three, one of three annual feasts. We're here, and we all know where King David's tomb is. It's right over there. We know where the tomb of David is. It's right over there. But there's nowhere we can point to the tomb of Jesus. Because the grave could not hold him. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. He brings it back to the hope of Jesus, and he, he brings it back to the hope of the resurrection. And that's why we're here. That's why we have hope, because the grave could not hold Jesus, because death and hell and sin does not win. 
that Jesus is victorious, greater than all of that. And he, he's really, he spikes the ball here when he writes this, being, or having said this, that, that Luke right, writes for us, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. He says, not only did Jesus die on the cross, and raise again three days later. Not only did he appear to over 500 witnesses and then just ascend to heaven, not only that, but Jesus is exalted and he is greater than everyone and everything. It's all about Jesus. It's all about him. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And that's our hope. It's right there. That our hope isn't found in us doing enough good. Our hope isn't found in us trying to be better people. That our hope is found in the fact that we are imperfect and we serve a perfect God. But a perfect God who loves imperfect people. Enough to bring His perfection down. So that even though we're imperfect, we could still be accepted by a perfect God through what His Son Jesus accomplished on our behalf. And that's the message. That's the message of the miracle. And that's the message that I hope each and every one of you have experienced in your lives. And if you've experienced that in your life, then you already know there is no greater feeling than that. Because it's why we were originally created to begin with. It's why we can live our lives to the fullest. Because each and every one of us has been designed to have an intimate relationship with our Creator. But if that's something you haven't experienced, I can't even begin to describe it to you. Because it would change everything about your existence. When you have an authentic encounter with God. This changes us. And so this, this should be what, what drives us. And, and we should live our lives being driven by this hope. And when God calls us to do something, we're not worried about what other people think about it. We pray about it, we search scripture about it, we, we talk to wise counsel, but we're not worried about what all the naysayers think when God calls us to go do something. Why should we be people who sit there when God calls us to do something and be paralyzed because somebody's not going to think it's a good idea? Because somebody's going to throw some shade our way that's our friend on Facebook that we should have defriended a really long time ago. We're not even sure why we're still friends with them, but we're just friends on Facebook. And we sit there paralyzed because we're like, oh, what are they going to think if this doesn't turn out the way that I think it should? And I'm just going to say, who cares? Follow what God has called you to do. Recognize that God has positioned you. Whether you're young, whether you're old, whether you're a man, whether you're a woman, God has positioned you where he has you for a reason. 
And stop letting the fear of what other people are going to say or think about you hold you captive. And instead, worry about being faithful. Doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Doesn't mean it's always going to be fun. But I promise you this, if you will faithfully go and do where God has called you to go and do what God has called you to do, He will provide for you. He'll work it out. Doesn't mean it's going to be massively successful from a human standpoint. Doesn't mean everything's going to be easy. I can promise you just the opposite. Because a lot of times God teaches us more through adversity. But I promise you this, there is nothing more fulfilling than being right in the center of where God has called you to be. Maybe you followed Jesus. But this seems so foreign because, truth be told, those regrets and those choices, they've created some distance for a really long time. And you can kind of think back to a time where you were doing some incredible things and God was working through you, but it's been a really long time. And you know for a fact you've given your life to God, but you've made a lot of choices that haven't honored Him. And make no mistake about it, the moment you give your life to God, the Holy Spirit now comes in and resides within us as people that follow God. But being filled with the Spirit is something that's different. And the book of Hebrews tells us that we have to guard our hearts because the process, we, we can easily... We can easily have hardened hearts, and that process happens quickly. Hebrews tells us it can happen in a day. And so maybe you've given your heart to God, but it's just been a long time since you've actively wanted to please Him. For you, I would just invite you to confess some things to God and ask the Spirit of God to come and to fill your life. The fruit of the Spirit is love, it's joy, it's peace, it's patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And if those aren't the identifiers of your life, then there's some work that needs to go on. And it doesn't mean that you don't have the Holy Spirit, but it means your heart has been hardened. And the last thing I'll say is this. We need to make sure that we we serve a supernatural God. We see in Scripture, He does the miraculous. And God is still at work today. God does the miraculous. Sometimes God works miraculously. Sometimes God works providentially. But God is still at work, both miraculously and providentially. But it's vital for us that we never let the providence of God and we never let the miracles become more important than the message. The miracles and the providence of God must always be used as a means to further the message. And it can never become just about seeing God work, whether that's providentially or miraculously. It's always got to be about the message. The message of Jesus. The message of redemption. The message of resurrection. And the message of hope. And that message is still the same today. Whether you're young or old, a man or a woman, I would challenge you and encourage you 
that God has placed you where He has for a reason. And if you would live a life where you follow after Him, it will be more fulfilling than you can even fathom. So don't worry about the people that don't get it. Don't worry about the naysayers. You just obediently follow and leave the results up to God. God, I pray that we would be people that follow after you. What you call us to do. I pray for the person here that gave you their life a long time ago. And it's been a long time since they've actively tried to honor you, God, with the way that they live. And I just pray that your spirit would break through. She'd convict them of their sin, but God, that there would just be forgiveness and restoration. And God, that your spirit would fill their lives. I pray for the person, God, that knows exactly what you've called them to do. They're hesitant. Either because others don't understand it or because they don't know exactly what you what direction you want them to go to take that first step. God, because they just can't, they can't neatly describe it all. And God, I just pray that they would step out in faith. I pray that they would follow you where you've called them to go and do what you've called them to do and they would leave the results up to you. Pray for the person that's never experienced the hope of, of Jesus and I pray today that all that would change. In the quietness of this moment, in their hearts, they would invite you in, God, confessing their sin to you, accepting the gift of salvation. It's available through your son, Jesus, came and died on the cross for our sins and rose again three days later. I pray, God, that as you work miraculously, as you work providentially, that you would work through us God, we would recognize that the means are never more important than the message. And so we pray that Lakeside would be a place that boldly proclaims the hope of Jesus. God, we leave the results up to you. But we see this region, and we know the need. So God, we ask that you would allow us to play a part and providing the hope that this region so desperately needs as we declare the name Jesus. We ask that you would bless our efforts, help us reach people, and help us walk alongside of them as we all grow closer to you. Work through us, God. We pray in your son Jesus' name. Amen.